Welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over 1 million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. My guest today is Stephen, the chair and founding CEO of the British Growth Fund, the UK's most active growth investor. Stephen worked in private equity and then became CEO of one of his portfolio companies. After 10 more years in private equity, being an owner of the firm, he started his own fund, BGF, in 2011, convincing several banks to fund him. 10 years later, he's invested billions in the UK, closing a deal every single week. In this episode, Stephen talks about being in the right state of mind to seize opportunities as they present themselves, why he gave up his convertible and life in sunny LA in his 20s to go back to the UK, and what makes a great leader great. Stephen, it's fantastic to have you on this podcast. Thank you very much. Before we speak about founding and scaling a huge growth fund and the lessons you've learned on the way, I would love to hear where you grew up. Uh, well, Timo, great opportunity to be here with you and thank you for inviting me. I grew up in South Africa, in Johannesburg. So the first 11 years of my uh, life were in Africa. It's a great continent. It's a place I have a lot of um, fond memories from. And then I came to England with my parents in the uh, in the early 70s, as I'm a tiny bit older than you. And that made England my home. But Africa has always had a very special place in, in my heart. And I suppose you can't take away your roots. And that's also true for um, you know all of my family, because we spent a, a number of holidays over the years in that part of the world. And if you look at who you are today, to what extent has, has that experience influenced you until today? Well, when I was growing up, I thought I was going to be a game warden. So mm -hmm. I clearly failed because <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a game warden. But it seemed like a, a natural thing, I suppose, for any uh, small boy growing up in Africa. You're going to think about um, animals and, uh, and wildlife. I think the lasting impact has been by definition from an early age having the, I think, the great advantage of living in different places as you're growing up. So um, as a small boy growing up in Africa, it was very different to then growing up in England. And uh, one of my first jobs took me to America and I lived in um, both Boston and Los Angeles. So that perspective of working, living, experiencing different cultures, different ways of doing things, is probably the lasting benefit. And it developed at an early age a curiosity in, uh, in other things. And I've, I've always had the view that curiosity, asking questions, being interested about other things, other people, other places is the way you learn. And it's also fun. Yeah, I can, I can absolutely relate to that. Um, 
you know, I, I was obviously born in Germany. Um, the accent has never gone away. Um, but then I've lived here for a long time now, having a British passport. And I lived in the US for a couple of years. So I really relate to what you described. And how was it like to then come to, the, to England? What influenced you in the early days here? Well, it was cold. So <laughs> that was different. Um, I think actually the school I went to in Johannesburg was set up, it was effectively an English style school set up in, in Africa. So I had a, a reasonable idea of what the English education system um, would be like. And I think when I came to England, I mean, it's a formative um, years, you, you start to understand, I think at a young age, what you're good at, what you're interested in. And I did have, I suppose, a strong commercial leaning from a very young age. And my father used to run the Parker Pen Company in South Africa. So when I was at school, even before I came to England, I was um, thinking about ways of selling selling product with a good markup, of course, um, <laughs> to some of my friends. So uh, being interested in enterprise, in business, is definitely part of um, my background. And I think maybe that would have always been the case. It's interesting to know what leads you into to a particular line of work or a career. I personally think there's an awful lot of luck in that, unless you know you want to be a, a doctor or a um, you know, a rocket scientist or whatever, if you have those sort of skills, a lot of life is about opportunities which present themselves. And are you in the, the right place? Um, are you in the right state of mind to be able to take advantage of those opportunities? And I think going back to changing sort of continents at a young age, I think it just yeah, increases that sense of adaptability. And I suppose an eye for, um, for what, what may be available. And what did you then study? Well, I, again, I'm old enough now to have done something called O-levels and A-levels at school. So it's not quite the same as the, the baccalaureate or the matric that you, you might have done in, uh, in Germany, Timo. So it's um, in the UK, I mean, our education system is very channeled at a, at a young age. So by the age of 16, you've dropped most subjects and then you concentrate on those that you have an interest in and presumably you're, you're better at. So my focus was much more on arts-based subjects. So uh, for my A-levels, I did um, history, English, and politics. So I clearly was not going to be a doctor or a rocket scientist with that sort of academic background. And that, I think, played to my both interest and strength in those sort of subjects. And from that, I went on to Durham University, where I read law, which is a very good degree. It can be a little bit dry at times, but there's a lot of material, there's a lot of reading, and there's a lot of analysis of that sort of information. And I suppose that goes back to some of the subjects that I studied at school. So there's always been that, that strong bias in terms of what I studied, which importantly, I enjoyed because I think it's very hard to do any form of studying if you don't, um, if you don't find it rewarding and fundamentally challenging and different for the for the right reasons but going back to those early days it was not a commercially based education or a technical one in the sense of doing maths or science subjects it was very arts based so when I left university I had the uh, the sort of decision to make what am I going to do now with that sort of background and the plan um, which I followed was to go into the law and so I qualified as a barrister 
And at that juncture, I really then had to make the sort of fundamental decision. Did I see my career being in the law as a barrister, which is a fantastic profession? It's very independent. It's creative. You sort of live by your wits, as it were. Or uh, did I see the opportunity to do something that was more commercial? And I suppose those sort of deep rooted instincts in terms of what I really found interesting and what I thought I would be good at took me in a more commercial direction. So having sort of qualified as a, as a barrister, I actually decided I needed to get some of the technical and commercial skills that uh, may be instinctive, but were not learned at that point. And so I went into a sort of American banking system, which, and this is in the 80s, uh, offered fantastic training and experience, which I'm not sure is as readily available nowadays, but it was an amazing opportunity to be paid and trained and to live abroad. So it was really a question of what's not like not to like about that. And what, what types of skills did you gain? I think good analytical skills in terms of understanding <clears throat> how businesses work and how they are financed and how they are analyzed. So that would be um, sort of basic accounting skills. So I am by no means an accountant, but I am numerate. And I was able to understand just because I was well taught the sort of rudiments of, of accounting. And I joined what was called the First National Bank of Boston, which was headquartered in Boston. So having had some initial training in the UK, I was then sent to Boston. And we went on a a training program, which was effectively a sort of in-house MBA. Uh, we had the advantage that Harvard is across the uh, across the river in Boston. So we had a lot of good materials from there. And it was a very, very well-constructed program covering not only just accounting, but banking, analyzing financial statements, learning computer modeling, thinking about competitive theory in businesses. So it gave me a lot of the technical and I suppose commercial detail that I hadn't really had to date, but it was a topic that really interested me. And then I think crucially, delivered an environment with like-minded individuals who were drawn from all over the world. So there were people from Europe, South America, Asia, as well as America. So it was a really eclectic international group, people in their mid-20s who were all doing a similar thing brought, brought together on, through this sort of training program, working in, uh, working in groups. And it was just a very stimulating and energizing place to learn. So, you know, I'm very grateful for the, the training that I got all those years ago in Boston because they, they did serve me incredibly well. And also, I think, gave me an exposure to a culture of an organization that I could relate to. I like that sort of camaraderie, that collegiate nature, the international um, features of it. So I came away from that with not only a good technical background, but also a good sense of what it's like to work in a business. And how long did you stay for? I was in America for a couple of years. So I uh, was in Boston and then I moved over to Los Angeles. Boston is a very easy place, I think, for sort of an Englishman to arrive. Uh, the older parts of Boston are a bit like parts of London, sort of cobbled streets and old red brick houses. It's quite anglicized in terms of its uh, history and its tradition. And it was a comfortable place and a very welcoming place to start. And then I was transferred as part of this training program to Los Angeles. 
which was much more what I thought America would be like, completely different, living on the beach, being provided with an open-top convertible car. I'm still in my <laughs> early 20s here. <laughs> Somebody's given me a car to drive to work, which I'm not paying for, an apartment by the beach. Wow. And it was just, uh, that did feel as if you're living slightly the Californian um, dream. And it was, again, uh, fascinating just to see lots of different businesses and to meet entrepreneurs. And I've got to recognize, obviously, I'm, I'm very much in a junior role here, but you can observe and learn through that. And that period of time living in Los Angeles, and again, it's in the, in the 80s, was really instructive because I got a very small, but um, for me, quite important exposure to younger companies because the, the sort of California's um, sort of history is, is not just sort of Silicon Valley over the last 20 years. It goes back much, much longer than that. And so one of the ambitions of the bank was to find some of these young companies, and this is uh, as a lending institution rather than an investor, but find some of these companies early, um, back them and stay with them as they grew. And that just struck me as a really interesting part of the business cycle because you were seeing young companies growing and some of them were then becoming sort of household names over the sort of years ahead. And in terms of was that sort of carefully planned on my part. It wasn't. Uh, I got the opportunity to go to California, which I thought would be fantastic. Worked in a smaller office than the head office in Boston, a great group of people. So it was a lot of fun personally, but it was an exposure to these younger growing companies. That was, I suppose, the lasting piece of my experience with, uh, with the Bank of Boston that I took away because I thought, well, that that is fun. Seeing all these young companies, understanding their businesses and their aspirations and I suppose my career subsequently has been sort of variations on that same theme, which I picked up early on in my career. And why did you then decide to leave? I was offered a job to stay in the Los Angeles office, which um, at that stage, single being in California, um, <laughs> seemed like a very good idea to me. So I accepted the offer only to find that, uh, that London thought this was a very bad idea, that the trainees would go to America and not come back. So they said uh, that would be a bad precedent. So I, I came back to London and then almost inevitably in these sort of situations, I didn't end up staying with the Bank of Boston for that long when I came back to the UK because people I worked with previously in London had gone off to join another bank and they asked me to, to join them. So As you look back in life, it's, uh, I wonder what would have happened had uh, I been allowed to take up that, um, that role in Los Angeles. I would have probably stayed in California for a lot longer. <laughs> And if you contrast what you saw in the US or particularly in California, how was it different in the UK? In California, the one thing that you notice straight away is there are no Californians. Mm -hmm. And, um, there must be some people who are born in California who live in California. So it is a real magnet for talent across the, um, across the states. And that was one thing that just sort of stood out, that this is a very vibrant community. There's a lot of young people who seem to be coming from all different parts of America to work in Los Angeles. I mean, it's a, it's a strange sort of city and you can't get around on public transport. Everybody drives. You've got this sort of split between working in the last metropolis of the city and then everybody is spread around the different parts of the, um, the, the sort of surrounding area. But I think it was the energy and the vitality 
that was very exciting combined with these um, young companies that were developing new technologies that were developing. So when I came back to London, it was much more traditional. And this was just before, um, you know, the sort of famous Big Bang when there was deregulation in the city. So the contrast in my mind was pretty stark between a much younger culture, economy, series of businesses to a more traditional environment that was the, the city of London. And I think that jarred a little bit when I got back because it, it really did feel as if I had missed out on a great opportunity to, to stay in a part of the world where some exciting things were happening. Was it common in the UK to invest into early stage companies? Like was, was venture capital growth investing private equity established at this point? It was very much in its um, early form. So one of the things that the Bank of Boston did was a tiny um, investments into sort of technology and venture. And I mean, very, very small because basically a bank. So some of that they did in London and I got involved in some of those transactions, but they were tiny. And I think what happened in the 80s is that and this partly as um, financial services deregulated uh, in the city, you saw the explosion in terms of the availability of capital And then the creation of new firms, the arrival of the Americans, so the American banks came in scale in the 80s to buy up the sort of traditional stockbrokers in, uh, in the city of London. And I think with that injection of both significant liquidity and access to capital markets, it also brought an exposure to new ideas, how you would accelerate growth, how you would support innovation. And that innovation went all the way through capital markets and then Some of it inevitably falls into, into private markets. And it was part of the, the reason that what was the sort of very fledgling venture capital industry and development capital industry suddenly exploded with the arrival of sort of leverage buyouts and management buyouts in the 80s. And you can link all of those two together because it was the unlocking of the capital markets, the ability then to access um, significant amounts of debt to fuel M&A that really started the process of growing the private equity industry in the UK and in Europe. So if you sort of fast forward from the, the 80s to where we are today, and um, sort of private equity markets are dramatically bigger. There's still, I think, a lot of scope for them to grow. But it was part and parcel of finding more efficient ways to use capital very much focused on running a business uh, to a shorter time frame, to specific strategic um, goals. And that hadn't really been done, certainly by investors in that way in the past. And the, the sort of success of the private equity industry in bringing that sort of focus and clarity then led to a lot of capital from investors looking to jump on that bandwagon. And so we've, we saw, I think over the course of the, those 30 years, the emergence in the UK and in Europe, obviously already in the US, a sort of global phenomenon, which are these huge pools of capital looking for interesting things to do. And the private equity industry, I think, continues to generate, as an asset class, superior returns because it's a tried and tested formula. If you get the formula right and you've got the right combination of leverage, price and management, they're still generating good returns. But it's much more competitive than it was. There's a lot more capital chasing those sort of transactions. 
And so naturally what you have seen over that period of time is that that capital is then looking for alternative assets which have similar sort of potential return criteria. And I think the big beneficiary of that has been sort of venture capital and the growth capital industry. So now we have, if you look at alternative investment strategies in Europe, I mean, we are still behind the US, but we are catching up and it's a much deeper, more sophisticated, more experienced market, which is enabling investors to find really what I suppose will always be the holy grail. How do you get the capital to the companies that are most attractive to invest in? And all of this, um, which I think is important in terms of where the economy is now, is a combination of what's happening in the sort of macroeconomic climate, then together with regulation in terms of what is permissible, you know, what governments and legislators want to happen, what does society want to happen. And when you get some of those in sync, then you can see significant periods of both, I think, creativity, investment and growth. And we've seen that in phases since the, uh, since the 1980s. And looking at the sort of growth capital and the venture capital market today in the UK and Europe, it is still, I think, relatively speaking, a cottage industry in comparison to the US, but it is substantially bigger than it was. Yeah, I, I can't remember the exact um, comparison, but I think it's five to eight times um, bigger, i.e. VC investing per capita in the US compared to the UK. But if you actually look at VC returns on average, and obviously I'm hugely simplifying here, it still feels like private equity is much more predictable from a return profile, whereas like the average VC fund actually has a fairly small IRR. Why do you think that is? They're very different investment strategies. I mean, the classic private equity deal is of a more established business with predictable cash flows. Uh, now, not every business turns out to be predictable and you can have unforeseen shocks, but that is what private equity investors are looking for. And if you've got that cash flow, you can apply leverage. And if you think of, I mean, valuation multiples are obviously going up again, but if you're looking at buying a business for, say, 10 times cash flow and you can borrow five to six times with leverage because the lenders think that is predictable. And of course, we now have the, the benefit of these very deep capital markets in terms of how loans are originated and then sold off. If you are only putting in, in my example, you know, sort of four-tenths of the purchase price by way of equity, just through the process of de-gearing, assuming the business doesn't fall over, you're going to make a return. Now, if you can grow the earnings and potentially grow the multiple you sell the business on, you can make superior returns. That model is predictable if you get the right ingredients, it's clearly getting harder because there's more competition and that manifests itself in terms of valuation. So buying a really strong, stable cash flow business for 10 times is probably not something you're going to see very much at the moment. It's going to be you know, potentially considerably higher than that. But as an asset class over decades, I think private equity has proved itself to be a reliable source of returns. I think when you get into venture capital and the top US venture capital firms have generated extraordinary returns, certainly those that have backed some of the very successful tech stocks. They are, I think, outliers in terms of the asset class, because in a way, I mean, if you take the, the sort of tech giants in America, you know, there's only going to be one search engine. 
there are, there are no prizes for being the second, third, fourth search engine. So I remember, I think News Corp owned something called Ask Jeeves at one stage, which was going to be their search engine. Now that's obviously disappeared. So there is no value for coming second there. And um, if you are one of the US venture capitalists that's back, that are backing some of these businesses that go on to be uh, sort of really significant in their particular sector, then you can make extraordinary returns. But that is an outlier. That is not going to be true, clearly, for every company that you back. And the nature of venture capital is such that for every 10 investments that you make, maybe five or six will just not succeed. The idea is not strong enough. Um, there's too much competition. You haven't got a strong enough management team. It could be all sorts of different reasons. So you then need your remaining investments to work really hard to recover the losses and then to provide you with that outsized return. And I think all venture capitalists and private equity investors for that matter think they're going to make very good investments. But the reality is when you are trying to evaluate an early stage company with a limited track record, there's just far less to evaluate and you don't have the um, organizational infrastructure that I think is a significant challenge for many earlier stage businesses scaling. So just on simple probability, the chances of succeeding in, uh, in earlier stage are much, much lower. And that's reflected in the asset class as a whole. Now, what we're seeing over the course of the last few years is certainly changing that because there have been some significant exits. But I still think a lot of investors are sitting on unrealized gains. And it's one thing to have a very high valuation on paper. It's another thing to sort of realize that, which again is in contrast to the private equity industry because there is a long history of realized gains because the sort of businesses they're backing are bought and sold time and again. So there's less of a question mark about will this business actually survive or not? It's more a question of what are we going to sell it for relative to what we paid for it? Yeah, no, makes makes perfect sense. So I guess private equity having... You know, capital structure optimization, multiple arbitrage, operational improvements as levers, whereas VCs have such a different risk uh, profile or risk and reward profile. I guess the logical consequence or, or assumption then has to be that there should be higher returns because the risk is much higher, but it doesn't feel that way. Um, the returns on average are still much higher in PE. Let's get back to you. When was the first time you then you know, moved from being an employee into a more entrepreneurial setup? Through um, sort of having uh, <coughs> sort of moved from the Bank of Boston, I, I sort of worked my way down the balance sheet, as it were, to equity on the assumption that's the most interesting area. When you're a shareholder in a company or an owner of a company, you can clearly do things differently and you can have much more of a direct impact than if you're a lender to um, to a business. And the, the role before my current role where I got an opportunity to sort of do that in earnest and to be an owner was when I was at JP Morgan. So if I just step back before that, I was with, uh, with Barclays as one of the uh, managing directors of Barclays private equity operation across Europe, which is uh, Equistone today, which has got a very good mm -hmm. and successful track record. And I backed a travel business when I was at Barclays and then I was asked, uh, this is two quite flamboyant entrepreneurs who set this company up, and it was, it was ahead of its time, as before uh, a sort of technology had really caught up with their idea, which very simply was to use uh, the sort of the power of television to, um, uh, to sell holidays. I mean, they're the ultimate aspirational purchase because you can't try before you buy. So good 
film images is a very nice way to sell that. And this is at the beginning of 2000. And so, I mean, today there's obviously very straightforward to do on all sorts of technology platforms. It wasn't at that particular point in, uh, in time, but you could see why the demand if you could uh, actually deliver the content in a way that was easily accessible, attractive to watch, uh, appealing, and then combined with the effectively a sales force behind that that could actually manufacture those products um, and sell them at a, a good price and generate a good margin. That's a, that's a good business model. And this is a company that I backed wearing my Barclays hat. And then the two founders said, um, would I like to come and run it? Which is a strange um, strange request maybe for them because I'd never run anything. And so why on earth would you, uh, why would you ask an investor to go and run a company? And the reason for that was that we had three key shareholders. We had Barclays, uh, we had Qoni, the uh, travel company, and we had Telewest, which is now part of Virgin Media, together with the founders. So the shareholding was spread across these four different groups, the four very different groups. You've got a travel company, a sort of telecoms company, an investor, and a management team. And so just creating alignment of interest across those shareholders was a challenge, partly because the entrepreneurs themselves were, were very, uh, you know, very specific in what they wanted to do, and perhaps less familiar with the needs of what other shareholders would want. So one of the key requirements there was actually the ability to build consensus around um, a group of shareholders and a business plan that everybody would get behind and then to create the funding for that. So when it was put to me in that context, I could see, okay, well, maybe I do have some of the skills that are needed for uh, for this role. So I took that role and that was probably the most informative part of my sort of business career, running a business for a travel business for a few years, running it through 9-11, which was clearly mm. a uh, sort of catastrophic event on multiple levels and certainly for the travel industry. Mm. And it was, uh, it was almost like the ultimate finishing school. It's no longer theoretical about what it says in a textbook. You're now actually dealing with significant shocks to a business that could be terminal. And when you're in charge, there is an assumption, which I think is perhaps a, an element of human nature, that the person in charge knows what they're doing. And that is not always the, uh, <laughs> it's not always the case, but it's flattering that people would think that. So one of the relevant skills I was able to bring to that situation was an understanding of how to keep companies afloat and alive in periods of real difficulty and challenge. And one of those is clearly having the support of your shareholders. Mm. So they can see you through the, the bad times as well as the good times. And then being able to come up with plans and execute against them that were realistic, that would both build confidence and in turn build um, alternatives. So we were able not only to survive 9-11, but actually to thrive beyond that. And, and I have to give credit to, um, to one, of the, uh, one of the two entrepreneurs who founded this business who is now um, who's now sadly dead but he was he was an unbelievable salesman and I'm sure he could have sold anything that he put his mind to mm. and post 9-11 he said well the world is now going to very much come to an end but not everybody's going to stop traveling so the travel companies are going to find that they've got a lot of airline seats and a lot of hotel beds which they can't sell so as a distributor of their product we can now get for our clients fantastic deals, you know, great flights to any part of the world, five-star hotels at prices that they would never have been able to afford in the past, which they can now. 
And so I remember one of the strangest board meetings, which was soon after 9-11, and this is a seasonal business, going into the board and saying, well, I know uh, you're hearing that many companies are now cutting costs and laying off people. Well, we're going to double our workforce. So because now is the time to double down and increase market share. And that is exactly what we did. So things like um, instinct and really having a good understanding of what the drivers are for a particular business, in this case, a travel company, were really, really valuable for me to learn and also to get the benefit of other people's experience who may or did have different backgrounds to me. But you, I think it's another sort of hopefully skill you pick up in life is being able to spot good advice, good information, recognize when it's valuable, equally when it's less useful, and uh, use that to inform your own decision-making. So it was, a, it was a, an extraordinary period of time and all, on so many different fronts. And we also opened a significant joint venture in Hanover with TUI, which as you all know, Timo um, is one of the biggest travel companies in the world. So that was an interesting mm. corporate development. And ultimately, post 9-11 and, uh, and how we grew the business, we then sold to um, uh, US networks, which is the owner of Expedia and Home Shopping Network and a whole range of sort of US TV channels. So we were able to get the business through this very difficult period of time, sell to a large um, US strategic and make a return for all the investors and the employee shareholders. So it was a Difficult period in many respects, but also incredibly rewarding because of facing up to challenges, which all businesses uh, will get regularly. And it's how you address those challenges that I think often are defining. And it's clearly going to be relevant now as we come out of um, the sort of COVID period. And it's a really unfair question, but it's it's so difficult to not conflate luck and skill. But if you had to describe you know, the particular skills that kind of made you successful in these circumstances, you know, really difficult circumstances. What kind of, you know, makes makes Stephen successful? We probably have to wait until the end to determine when, <laughs> when you've been successful. So that's one thing. Uh, you have to have a point of view. What What you can't do is to evaluate everything to come up with <clears throat> what you think is on the balance of probabilities, the most likely to succeed. So I think when you're faced either with extreme difficulties or with an opportunity, you have to seize it and you have to be confident that you've made the right decision. And it may turn out with hindsight not to be exactly right, but making a clear decision and then executing it is far more likely to be successful than trying to come up with the perfect answer and failing to execute it. So I think it's that... You've got to have the, the, I think the combination of self-confidence to back your own judgment, but also the humility to make sure you are taking enough soundings that when you make those decisions, they're not just complete knee-jerks uh, reactions and you're trying to be considered. But ultimately, you've got, to take, you've got to take a view. So going back to that board meeting, doubling, doubling up on the number of people we had in the call center, I should imagine to the board when they first heard, heard that, would have thought, you're completely mad. What on earth would you do that for? Then they listened to the argument and said, okay, well, that seems to be at least plausible. And it is a seasonal business and other people are clearly exiting the market. So if you think that will work, then we effectively give you the benefit of the doubt. And I think that's where, which is another element of being lucky, we all store up goodwill, whether it be with 
suppliers, shareholders, employees, and you use that currency when you need it most, when you've got to make difficult decisions. And then you spent 10 years at JP Morgan and private equity being a senior partner, but ultimately decided to leave to start your own company, uh, BGF. What was the vision back then? Well, the um, JP Morgan is a phenomenal and very successful bank. And so I went in as a partner when we were employees of the bank. And then we had the opportunity to basically spin out that business to an independent entity that was owned by the partner. So I was one of the owners. I think there were there were eight owners, seven Americans and, and one Englishman. So you can see where the balance of power in that particular um, <laughs> relationship uh, lay. But that was, a, that was a tremendous opportunity to then be an owner of a significant private equity business that was investing on a global basis. And I, together, one of my partners was responsible for looking after our activities in, in Europe, which from an American standpoint also included Africa uh, and Australasia. They tell them they're different parts of the world. So <laughs> I spent a lot of time traveling. It was very interesting. Again, I suppose going back to those early years, I've always been interested in travel, um, the opportunity to be investing uh, in places like Africa, Australia, uh, sort of Hong Kong. They, they were fascinating, South Korea. So I really did learn an enormous amount uh, from that. And I do think in your career, if you keep learning, then things remain interesting and you keep energized and you keep active. So I wasn't planning on a sort of change, as it were, from being an owner of a, of a private equity firm, because that's a great position to get into. But then, this is back in 2010, I was given effectively an opportunity to start something from scratch, which might or might not have worked, but I thought was a really good moment in time uh, when there was a need in the economy for a different type of investment organization coming out of the financial crash that would be focused on providing growth capital to a broad range of companies across the, the UK. And when the opportunity, and this goes back to this point about, I guess, being lucky, when the opportunity presented itself um, to me, I could have analyzed that for a very long period of time. Mm -hmm. um, but I followed my hunch. I mean, I had to make some, some big assumptions. Was there potentially a market gap in terms of the provision of equity finance to small growing companies in the UK? Are my view, which remains true today, is there was, and it's not unique to the UK. So I tick that box. Could you actually get the capital uh, in, in enough scale to give this um, a sporting chance of being successful? And the banks who are our shareholders were prepared to do that or uh, indicating that they would be prepared to do that. Again, that's another judgment. Would they actually follow through? But there was enough intent on their part to give me the confidence that they might if it was done well. Could you then recruit a team to build a business from scratch? And ultimately, would there be any market demand? And there are so many huge imponderables in all of that. Any one of those would be reason not to have done this. But I think this is where you can overanalyze some things and you've got to follow your experience. So I understood this market, um, follow your hunch, and then make it happen. And it was, uh, it, it was not something that I've been looking to do, but it's something I'm incredibly grateful that that opportunity presented itself and, and I grabbed it. And here we are 10 years later and have made what I would describe as a good start. <laughs> I think you're being very humble. And hundreds of deals later, 
what have you learned about leadership on that journey? The most powerful and also the most obvious is the importance of a great team. Uh, it doesn't matter how talented any individual is. There, there is, a, there is a limit to what any one person can do, and you can't build a business with one person. So, creating a team, setting the culture, and setting the direction for a company is an incredible opportunity and a privilege to be able to do something like that. And if I go back to 2010, you know, we all ask for advice when you get into key decisions. So, you know, whether it be your, uh, your wife, your partner, whatever, you'll get that advice from somebody who knows you very well. And also from people you work with in business. So one of um, my close uh, friends is a headhunter and he knows the private equity industry well. And so I chatted to him about this idea over a drink and he made a, you know, he made a schoolboy error because at the end of this drink, he said, and of course, if you need any help getting this off the ground, I'll help you. So the very first person I hired was a headhunter. Oh. I thought, right, this is a good idea. I think I'm going to have access to the capital, but we've got no people. So who knows where all the people are? <laughs> um, and he did. And then it's a question, you know, as you've done, Timo, in terms of building up a fantastic business, you've got to get people to share that, you know, the same vision to believe that you can actually do something. And you know, I, I'm a big believer in the power of collective will. Energy and determination can take you a long way. It's not entirely down to that, but if you don't have enough energy and enough determination, I think it's very difficult to succeed. Yeah, powerful point. Um, and, you know, I hope that Gusto increasingly is famous for talent and culture, and that sets us apart from other companies. And I just couldn't be more proud of the team and, and the passion and the energy and the rigor of everyone working at Gusto. And you've clearly learned a lot about board dynamics, being on different boards, seeing different boards. What makes a great board? Uh, I learned a great deal from... Uh, our first chairman at, at BGF, sort of the first nine years, to Nigel Rudd, who's extremely experienced. He's also entrepreneurial. He set up his own businesses. He built Williams Holdings from a sort of shell company to a FTSE 100 company. He's an angel investor in lots of companies. He's chaired some of the biggest businesses in Britain and internationally. So just a great businessman, but somebody who is also very down to earth and very grounded. And the sort of advice he gave me at the outset was you've got to make you've got to make this interesting for your board. If it is all about governance, then you're not going to be able to attract the sort of right sort of people. And what will you, as the sort of chief executive, be taking out of those board meetings if it's just a question of reporting and governance? So I think one of the elements of a good board is a board who is engaged. Uh, who understands what their respective roles are, the differences clearly between a non-executive and an executive director, but everybody should feel they are on the same team. And that sense of shared mission and purpose and ownership. So alignment of interest is something obviously we all talk about as investors and you'll know full well, Timo. When you get strong alignment of interest at all levels, so people are working in the same direction It makes um, what seems at times almost impossible achievable. And that's not to say the sort of board or the shareholders are not holding you to account, but you've all got the same ambitions. And when you do hit stumbles or things don't go 
exactly as you planned. That sense of alignment and shared objectives is is crucial. And that's how we get through difficulties because people still believe in what you are trying to do. So I think that would be, for me, one of the most critical things. Then from a cultural standpoint, creating a board where you really do want people to be collegiate, but also to be able to speak their minds. So an openness and a quality of debate. So again, a board meeting is not just a governance um, function. I mean, it clearly has a very important governance role, but it's an opportunity to discuss ideas, to test ideas, to get pushback, to try and understand why people are um, looking at things in potentially a different way. So it needs to be a sort of rich environment where you're actually going to learn and to be able to adapt in terms of how you're reacting to to business. And then I think the accountability element is equally important. Having a board is a proper um, way of actually keeping track of what you said you were going to do, what you've done, what you're planning to do. And whilst businesses change and invariably plans need to adapt and evolve, I think it is an important discipline to think we are all answerable to somebody. And how do you actually build confidence? You build confidence by articulating clearly what you're trying to do, by getting that sense of shared commitment and vision, and then being held accountable to that and actually tracking progress. So for me, a board can do all of those things. And a good board really stands out because it comes across as harmonious, collegiate, very much an interaction, and you feel that there is a common sense of purpose. Where you see boards breaking down, it's when that's been lost. And then people have their own agendas. It's much more confrontational. And it becomes something of a a process of attrition where people are trying to wear each other down. And I think good companies invariably have well-functioning and good boards They've got a good balance of skills. They're not people all from the same background. They're able to challenge um, the executive. They're able to debate um, issues amongst themselves. And they should equally feel a similar sense of pride and ownership that every other employee in a company feels. So if the board sits on top of a corporate structure, it's not meant to be sort of divorced from it. And just as a final question, I read uh, you are a magician. Are you still practicing magic? Uh, a slightly on borrowed time. I, I was uh, I was the university magician at Durham, so that uh, that was an alternative source of income for me. So um, I do practice, but not as much as I should. But it's always good to have something to fall back on. So you never know, Timo. <laughs> if, if you see me busking, I want you to donate generously. And... It's been quite useful, I suppose, in my business career over the years to be able to break the ice and I'm doing a talk or a dinner uh, to do a magic trick because most people think, what on earth is this guy doing? Um, and then occasionally, if it works properly, uh, it's a very good way just to get people to uh, relax and then, uh, then they can listen to what you're saying. So it's, it's a hobby which has been with me most of my life and uh, I wouldn't want to let it go, but uh, I don't think I'm going to win any competitions, put it that way. 